The We Make Florida podcast is brought to you by Out the House Productions. Welcome to We Make Florida. I'm your host, BJ Brunius. Thanks for coming back, guys. We are T minus 51 weeks until the 2022 midterm elections. This is important. There are gubernatorial races coming up, Senate races coming up. And Florida is no exception. We have a governor's race coming up in 2022, a Senate race coming up next year. House of Representatives, they run every two years. So they are always on the ballot, no matter what. And what we've noticed, particularly in Florida, but across the country, there is a dramatic decrease in voter turnout in the midterms. And people aren't aware that there are elections, sometimes every year, sometimes every two years, definitely every four years, people are highly aware and sensitive when there are presidential elections that are occurring every four years. But those midterm elections, people are not so much aware, voter turnout drops dramatically. And so part of what I would like to do is to ensure that we have an electorate that number one is aware that we have elections, and offer an opportunity for candidates to share their thoughts and their vision for the people of Florida. So that brings us to our first episode in a series where we turn over our platform to the candidates who are running for public office to represent you. And our first candidate is Frank Hughes Jr. Mr. Hughes is a son of veterans, a father of three beautiful children. He resides in Tallahassee and works as a school teacher. The We Make Florida podcast is happy to have him Everyone give a warm welcome to gubernatorial candidate, Frank Hughes, Jr. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great honor to be here. It's a pleasure being able to speak with you this lovely morning. So I was reading through your bio, and the first thing that immediately stuck out to me, right, was that you and I have a shared work history. You mentioned uh, on your website that you actually worked for UPS after college, and I worked for UPS while I was in college, and working for UPS is a really, really hard job. So my immediate thought was, this is a candidate who knows how to work under pressure. This is a person who most likely prides himself on exceeding the expectations of the people that he's either supervising or working with, and this is someone who can deliver the goods. So how has your blue-collar beginnings sort of shaped your idea of what Florida politics should be in 2021? I believe that there's no substitute for hard work, uh, no matter what demographic you come from. Uh, my blue-collar beginnings, it starts way back with my grandparents. You know, they look blue-collar workers, you know, truck drivers, postal workers, uh, working on a chicken farm, paper p- processing plants. So that's my background of where I come from as far as coming from a blue-collar family. Uh, so I'm no stranger to hard work. Um, and I believe everybody wants to work hard to achieve uh, a better life for themselves and their family. But in terms of politics, uh, we have gotten too far away from taking care of the blue-collar family. It's more so the haves and have-nots. I believe so. it's more classism now than anything else. You know, if, if you have money, we'll take care of you. If we don't, uh, you just get in where you can. 
Um, and that's what I'm trying to eradicate from, from politics. I'm trying to get rid of the, the big money interest because as we all know, if you, you had to work at UPS while you were in college, you know, that, that's, a, that's not an easy task to do. And we just want to create a better future for everyone, not just those that, that have. So what has the UPS experience or your experience as a working uh, father uh, in general, what has that taught you about the particular needs of working families where government should 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 step in and sort of assist with those needs? I will use this past year as an example. Florida is one of the many states who didn't expand uh, Medicaid. And when we talk about working families, health is a big part of that. So when we talk about health, we're talking about sick children, uh, you know, hospital visits and having to take time off of work, which many working families can afford to take time off of work because missing one or two days might mean a light bill might not get paid that, that next month, uh, depending on, you know, the working situation. So health is a, a big priority of me being uh, a working parent, myself, uh, me and my spouse, we try our best to make sure our kids are staying healthy. But this past year, if you take for instance, we've been dealing with COVID and, and just, you know, general sickness all together, your children in school, they tend to pick up a, a, a germ or two. And sometimes you got to keep them at home. So when you're at home missing those days off work, that's money not going into your pocket, such as the panhandle. Um, you know, it's not very many hospitals up here. Uh, you can go, you know, almost an hour without running into a major city, uh, you know, and we all know Medicaid plays a big part in supporting our uh, state-run hospitals. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, health care, particularly in the context um, of working families. You know, we've done some polling, particularly in the western part of the panhandle, about the issues that matter the most to citizens. And we've done that poll and so circulated it uh, through emails and through social media, and healthcare is the number one issue. And so I'm glad you brought that up. So that sort of leads me to my next question. You know, the number one reason for declaring bankruptcy in this country, and particularly in the state of Florida, I might add, is not everyday citizens, you know, irresponsibly spending tons of money on extravagant things that they don't need. No, the number one reason declaring bankruptcy in the state of Florida is health care costs. And most of us are literally one illness or one car crash away from economic catastrophe in our lives. And this is people with health insurance. You know, we can have a completely separate discussion about people who can't afford health insurance, but I'm talking about people with health insurance. And the COVID-19 pandemic has really demonstrated that we have a health care system that is teetering on the brink of collapse. So my question is, what are the options available to you as the governor to ensure that like a family whose child comes down with leukemia or a woman who's diagnosed with stage three breast cancer or a guy who gets colon cancer, what are the options available to you as the chief executive of the state to prevent someone from not only having to deal with the stress of their illness, but also to not have to worry about economic bankruptcy, secondary to like healthcare costs. It's great that you mentioned that. I like that you use the word preventing. We want to be 
ahead of the game. We we don't want to be reactive to every situation. And with that, we need to make sure everybody has an option of health care. Um, if you have uh, one of the ailments that you mentioned before, you know, breast cancer, or colon cancer, or leukemia, that didn't just happen overnight. That, you know, that was an ongoing process. So by you not being able to afford those yearly screenings, going to your local doctor or a health department, getting those screenings done yearly or, or routinely, you, you miss out on the opportunity to catch certain diseases in the early stages. I know our state health departments are lacking the resources that they need to go out into the community and provide these resources to those who can't necessarily get to um, their primary care physician all the time or they're in a rural area to where, you know, the nearest health clinic might be 25, 30 miles away. So we want to create a preventive care type of society in the state. I have insurance and I've seen the bill from when my first child was born. Uh, they they said that's the whole entire bill of, you know, what everything costs. Luckily, we only had to pay our out-of-pocket expense. My wife had a cesarean, uh, which, you know, is way more expensive than uh, a natural childbirth. But you're talking 20000 plus to have a child if you don't have insurance. So who has $20,000 just laying around if you don't have insurance? Yeah, or I think, if I you, think the data shows that there's uh, the majority of people don't even have $500 set aside for an emergency. So $20,000 is not even... Not even a thought, not even a, a question that people just have that money sitting around for, you know, for like a medical emergency. I, I have no idea why our state hasn't expanded Medicaid because it would be 90% funded by the federal government. We would just pay the 10% versus from what it used to be. One of the other things that struck me, or at least that stuck out to me, um, was that you transitioned to a career in service to the education of children by becoming a teacher. Now, I come from a family of educators, and I read that you're a huge proponent of early childhood education through universal pre-K. And I received, I have a personal testament to receiving an amazing preschool education. Shout out to Rainbow Academy and Preschool, which still exists today. Um, so you don't have to convince me about the importance of preschool and pre-K education. But can you explain to our listeners why you think it's important for children to not simply have a babysitter until they're eligible to go to kindergarten, but also to have education and instruction be a part of that experience? As we very well know in our state, uh, Governor DeSantis, he got rid of um, the FSA, that's the Florida Standards Assessment Test that uh, our students take from third grade on through. But with that, when we're looking at the data as educators, we see the difference in children receive, you know, a pre-K education versus those who didn't by the third grade. The reading levels are completely different. There's a, there's a large gap there. We have VPK, but in VPK, a lot of people don't 
well, not I'm say a lot of people, but a lot of counties don't have an actual pre-K program themselves. Uh, and for people who don't far. know what VPK is, can you just explain to the listeners what VPK is? VPK is a voluntary pre-K program, emphasis on voluntary. So <laughs> it's a voluntary pre-K program. Now, there's some daycares uh, or child care centers that do provide a, a VPK program, but most child care centers do not, and many school districts don't have pre-K throughout the district wide. They may have pre-K centers throughout the district, and that might be for those who are um, what we like to say uh, developmentally delayed. Imagine if we can get majority of our four-year-olds into a classroom much sooner than having them sit around in childcare or even just be at home until they're five to get into kindergarten. A child's first time learning the ABCs and numbers shouldn't be in kindergarten. You're noticing that there seems to be an investment in playing catch up and, and probably the smarter thing in your view is to invest in those reading skills and reading comprehension skills earlier so that you're not sort of behind the eight ball when they get to third or fourth grade. Is that essentially what you're saying? Yes, and that, that yeah. is, that's the biggest, um, I, I believe that's the, the, the biggest, you know, component we can try to get. We, we have to be proactive and not reactive. I think mm. we, we will save a lot more money being proactive versus reactive. So when it comes to public schools, you know, you don't have to drive very far to know that there are public schools in certain neighborhoods that look like a college campus and public schools in other neighborhoods that look like prisons. And just in Central Florida alone, you know, you could a public school in Winter Park looks very different than some schools in Pinellas Park, even though they both have park in the name of the city. Yes. And part of the reason for this is obviously concentrated poverty, education funding partially based on property taxes and property value. But we've also seen a shift in channeling public education dollars away from already struggling public schools into the charter school system and the private school space. What are your thoughts on these practices particularly and how do you plan to address the educational disparities across the state? That's a that's an excellent question. Um, I, I've answered that question quite a few times from, from many others in the education setting. Um, the whole use of public funds for, for charter and private schools, I don't necessarily agree with wholeheartedly. Um, I will say this, though. Um, if a charter school is publicly funded, it needs to have oversight by that local school district. I believe every school is open with, with good intentions, but um, you have to have that personal investment in most charter schools in order for it to, to thrive. Else it starts to fall by the wayside. If you look at many of the statistics, you know, they, the charter schools start off with a high ranking, and then all of a sudden, after a few years, it starts to dwindle something. That's because the personal investment has left. So when I was thinking about the questions that I wanted to ask, I, I went to some people to say, hey, wh what do you want to know from a candidate that's running for governor? What, what are some of the questions that you'd like me to ask? Um, one of the things that was brought up, which was 
I was delighted uh, to hear was the issue of student loan debt. Student loan debt is a topic that I want to cover with every candidate that's running for office. And if you listen to my last podcast, I gave an analysis of the student loan debt crisis in this country. And after hearing that podcast, someone from Student Loan Justice reached out to me on Twitter to explain that Florida student borrowers are, are not at all exempt from this crisis. And Florida student pretty much owe about $118 billion in education debt. The budget for the entire state of Florida is only about $100 billion. So we've got about 12% of the Florida population carrying the weight of more debt than the entire Florida state budget. Do you see this as an issue as I see it? Do you see it differently? And if so, how do you plan to address college affordability in Florida? Student debt is, a, is an issue across the country, and I, you know, for one, I'm still I'm I'm one of those uh, people who's in student debt, and I, I have many other friends and colleagues who are still paying off their student debt, and uh, a lot of it is due to companies and the, the interest rates that and how it's set up with student debt. But state institutions need to be a tad bit more affordable in my in my take and we also need to make sure our students well the ones here in florida are taking advantage of our dual enrollment program if they can the dual enrollment program where uh once you know a student passes their junior year they can begin to take a couple of college courses at uh, a local college, whether it be community or, or four-year or or, or um, major four-year institution, so students taking advantage of our dual enrollment will help save some of the cost of student debt in our um, student population. Um, but I I do want to let a lot of people know, as far as student debt is concerned, we have to look at the overall economy. When we, when we speak about student debt. Me, myself, when I have to make that payment every month, that can be money going elsewhere. They can fuel the economy itself. So instead of me spending, you know, maybe $40 at a local restaurant, maybe going to, to, to see a movie or maybe traveling to a, a neighboring city to go to a concert or an event, I have to say, you know what? I gotta pay this student loan bill. I can't do that. You know, home buying, that's a big issue. A lot of students, especially millennials, we can't afford to buy a home because we have student debt that we can. When you're paying, you know, five, six hundred dollars a month to your student debt, how can you buy a home? You you can't save any money, especially if you're working a, a job where you're not making at least, you know, the median uh, income for that particular city or, or county that you're in. Right. So I want to take a shift away from policy and into politics. After all, you are running for governor. And yes. statewide elections in Florida are routinely decided by, you know, less than a half of a percentage point. When you think about how close the election between Andrew Gillum and DeSantis was, more people have died of COVID in Florida than the number of votes that separated Gillum and DeSantis. The same can be said about Bill Nelson and Rick Scott's election. 
Rick Scott and Alex Sink's election, Rick Scott and Charlie Crist's election, and so on and so on, there's always just this very, very small, less than a half percent, less than one percent difference between the two candidates. And so what do you plan to do to get those extra 40 or 50,000 votes that are needed to secure a victory in a statewide election? And I have a follow-up to that after you tell me what your uh, strategy is to get those extra votes. The follow-up is how do you plan to unite the state after you win, considering that you know these elections usually go 49-49, 50-50, so you have a, whoever wins, the electorate is gonna be split. So how do you plan to get those extra votes and then once you get them and secure that victory, how do you plan to unite the state to get things done? That's an excellent question. And speaking to people around the state, and especially since being here in the panhandle, the number one thing that separates the candidates is the panhandle. The panhandle is like the forgotten part of Florida. When people speak of the panhandle, you hear Pensacola, you hear this in the Panama City Beach, but all that area in between, people tend to forget about it. And that's where I believe people lose their voters. I guess even though it's mainly rural areas, they're still your constituents too, and they deserve your attention. Because everybody's fighting for South Florida because that's where the majority of our population is from I-4 and below. So everybody's fighting uh, for South Florida, but they tend to forget about North Florida uh, being a very big part of the state as well. You're talking about farming. Uh, you're talking about those who have in industrial type jobs. That's that's all North Florida. Uh, that's the ma majority of that voter base. So if you're not willing to to to, to roll up your sleeves and, and, and you know go down the dirt road or two, if you if you need to to, to talk to those constituents, I believe you're gonna you're gonna lose that segment of the state. But as far as bringing the state together, you, you have to be willing to just be engaged um, i know a lot of people don't don't see it that way um people think about florida you you think about miami and then disney world but florida is, is so much more than that uh, you can almost kind of divide florida up into three states per se you can say south florida then you have central florida then you have north florida south florida is more your, your big city lifestyle uh you know it's a lot more hustle and bustle Central Florida is a, a little bit more, you know, it's, it's still a big city, but it's a lot slower pace. Uh, and then you have North Florida, where it's, where it's rural, it's blue collar. Uh, people are hardworking and they, they get after it and they just want to live a, a good quality life. We, we're also going through a, a redistricting phase here in our state. And one of the many problems that I have spoken to people about is we want people to choose their leaders, not the leaders choose their people. And uh, we all know gender, gerrymandering has been a, a long ongoing issue, uh, seems like forever in a day. Uh, but when they do this redistricting, you can't, you know, when they draw it up, draw the map and, you know, cut it up into however many pieces uh, to favor how they want it to go. 
That's understandable, particularly because the gerrymandering issue in the state of Florida is definitely going to be top priority um, for the upcoming year. Have you run for office before? You're the first person to ask me that. <laughs> to ask if you've run for office? Yeah, before. Oh, okay. Thank you for that. I don't think this first time answering that question. I don't think nobody else has, has asked yet. But yes, this is my first time running for office. Um, well, I didn't I know mean that to a, be like, uh, <laughs> to be offensive. I just was thinking that, you know, there are voters who are like, you know, we've tried this electing uh, an inexperienced outside candidate. And so maybe there's a sh there, there could be a shift going the other way. Like, you know, people want somebody now with experience because, you know, we've, we've tried that whole, you know, disrupt the system, no experience <laughs> option, and it didn't work out so well. So I was wondering that that was the reason why I was asking. Uh, yes, um, this is my first time, you know, running for an elected position. Um, I've been approached by others to run for other positions, uh, you know, here locally. Um, a few people have wanted me to actually run for me in Tallahassee. Right now, I'm focused on uh, the gubernatorial race. Uh, my wife has always said, you know, what's taking you so long. So they always like, you know, experience, experience, experience. But we have all this experience now, and what has it gotten some of us? Well, I want to get your thoughts on the climate crisis. A lot of uh, politicians, climate scientists, journalists, I mean, I would even put myself in that category. We, we tend to say that it's very hard to do like in-depth stories on the environment. We want to do them, but it's really hard to get the public to take notice of these stories. What we have noticed is that you know, the general public tends to turn the channel. I'm pretty sure there are going to be some people who will stop listening to this podcast or skip forward past it because climate stories just aren't, they aren't the things that people click on as often as, you know, America's top 10 cutest German shepherds or something. It's just not, people say that they're interested in it, but then when you do a story about it, when you, um, you know, try and produce really good elevated content about how the climate crisis is affecting Florida, that the data is just showing that, you know, people change the channel. People don't click on those stories. People will probably skip forward in this podcast because climate is important, but it's not, you know, not spicy. So before we get into your actual climate policy and ideas, can you explain to me, how do you plan to convince the average person to even care about the climate crisis, just as much as, you know, the latest Hollywood scandal, for example. It's like what you said, you know, climate is, is, is not the, it's not the, it's not what's happening. It's, it's not the, it's not the, the, the apple, it's, it is the, it's, it's, it's the work boots. You know, I, I, they're holding up for now, uh, in the back of my truck and put them back on when I need them. Uh, that's how we tend to uh, put attention on climate. But in order to get people to really pay attention, you have to be green with something that people love. And in Florida, 
we love our beaches. So what is the main focus of how we coincide our coastal line with climate change? And as we very well know, this is Hurricane Central. Every time a hurricane comes through, as of lately, the coastline gets a, a tad bit smaller. When a hurricane comes, as people know, hurricanes dump a lot of water, but they suck up a lot of water at the same time. So when they dump the water, you know, on the state, they're sucking water off the coastlines, which further erodes the, the coastal uh, demographic. So when we're talking about whether or not I'm going to have beachfront property in a couple of years, you know, that may very well change. So that house that you, you know, have on the beach uh, that's been there for, you know, 30, 40 years, and you look up five years from now, and it seems like the water is just foots from your doorstep, that's due to climate change. So we have to make people feel invested in some sort of way, and their investment might be that house. The investors of all these big resorts and hotel chains, we have to say, you know what? We have to do something to protect your investment. That's a $120 million resort you have on the beach. If you look at the beach, it's been slowly disappearing over the past decade. How are you going to still come to the beach at my resort when you have three feet of beach line? and then it drops off into the ocean. You can't sail that no more. Your resort becomes just a, a, a hotel. It's not a beach resort anymore. It becomes a hotel. So we have to sell that, that, that marketing factor to our investors, those who are invested in you know, the coast, coastal regions. When you talk about our coastal regions, you're talking about everybody. You're talking about the seafood markets. You're talking about the restaurants, all the, the, uh, the surf shops. Um, hotels and resorts um many of our people make their living from the coastline um as you know just this past summer we had the, the algae bloom especially in the, the tampa bay area you're talking about people who couldn't go out and fish to serve fresh fish at their restaurants and markets you know they you know it's bad enough that we're already dealing with the pandemic we're talking about having to close now because like what am i going to serve my customers, I don't have nothing to serve them because all the fish in the bay are are dead. I can't serve people that. So, so I guess what to, I'm hearing you, what I'm hearing you say is we need to. I'm hearing you say two things. We need to number one connect the outside environment and make it relatable to our indoor environment, like our our biggest investments, like our homes or our businesses. And the other thing that I'm hearing you say is we need to connect climate to to our economic prosperity in the state and so your thoughts are in order to make this something that is more digestible by the public is to number one make it more relatable and connected to the economy am i getting that right yes okay um because we you know tourism is our is our economy that's that's our economy across the state and i always tell people you want to get somebody's attention Start talking about how you want to lose money. You start talking about people losing money, you will get their attention real quick. If 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 your uh um your financial advisor called you today and told you 
hey, that investment you made is going to lose a ton of money. You're going to be like, do something right now. It's not going to be, uh, uh, you know, let's ride it out and see if something changes. If they say you're going to lose money, you're like, hey, you need to do something to change or rectify that situation. So that's what I said. You know, we got to tie it to the economical prosperity of our state. Well, there you guys have it. Frank Hughes from Tallahassee is running for governor in the state of Florida in the 2022 election. You guys check out his website. Do you want to let us know your social media handles, where people can find you, how they can get in contact with you if they want to volunteer for your campaign? Let the listeners know. Yes, um, you can always go to my website. That is hughesforflorida.com. That's H-U-G-H-E-S-F-O-R-F-L.com. My info is on there. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at hughesforflorida. That's uh, the same as the website. Uh, the social media links are actually on the website as well. Uh, I have a page on my website if you want to volunteer, uh, social media, canvassing, uh, basic marketing. Um, also, please feel free to donate towards the, the campaign. As we all know, it takes uh, some money to keep these things going. Uh, we're trying to keep up with the, the big money, but I can tell you right now, I don't need millions to to, to make some noise. I can do it a little bit nothing because I am that person. Uh, but as always, we can and we will. I'm for the people. I'm trying to do right by the people of this state. And thank you again. Well, we appreciate you joining us. Frank Hughes Jr. is running for governor. Thank you for joining us on We Make Florida. And we'll see you next week.